You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. Today, I've got another interview for you, and it is with probably the most prolific sports card tweeter out there, Ivan Lovegren at Watch the Breaks. He's the co-host of the GoGTS live show, and he is constantly tweeting about sports cards um, on Twitter, obviously, and he also, I love to watch when he goes live to talk about cards and to talk about business and to talk about life. And so I'm excited to bring an interview with him today. But I also want to invite you to check out Underdog Events and Collectibles. Uh, they're a new sponsor of the show. They are an online shop run by collectors for collectors. You can join their Facebook group by searching for Underdogs on Facebook. You can check in with them for great prices on breaks. They've got singles. They've got some newly released wax. And remember, they say always bet on the underdog. Look for them on Twitter and Instagram as well by searching UDog Collect. I appreciate them supporting the show, and I'd appreciate it if you checked them out. All right, now without any further ado, our interview with Ivan. Today we've got another special guest, and it is Ivan Lovegren. Watch the breaks, as you might know him from GoGTS Live and Twitter. And so welcome to the show, Ivan. Hey, great to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me today. I've been really enjoying getting a chance over these last several weeks to get a chance to connect with um, several of the the collectors, personalities, podcasters, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, people in the in the hobby. And so I, I was glad that you were able to to join me today to chat a little bit more. You're somebody that I have been following and paying attention to over the last couple of years. And so there's still some things about you that I don't know and will be new to me and I'm sure new to some of the the folks in the audience as well. And so thanks again for joining me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited actually when we talked a little bit before and you told me what what you were interested, I was a little surprised. I was like, oh, I get to talk about myself? Yes, let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So, it's like it's so, like a first date, Mike. It it is. It is like our our first little date here. Yeah. You know. So speaking of that, how about we start with just a little bit about your collecting backstory? If I'm not mistaken, you grew up in Nebraska. If mm-hmm. if I'm and so I'd just be curious to to know about your backstory. You know, when you started collecting and all of that type of thing, and just kind of w- what got you into cards. Well, so I started collecting um, when I was four years old. Um, my first pack of cards, I pulled an Andre Dawson um, all-star pop-up card, uh, an insert, a hit, if you will, um, from the Cubs, which were my favorite team because my dad was from Chicago. And so I was hooked, hooked from from that time on. Uh, 1989 Tops helped me learn how to read because I knew all the players. And so I would learn their names, um, the letters uh, collected all the way through grade school, um, you know, up through the, the baseball strike. And that was when I really started collecting football a lot. 
Um, so like 1994 to like 97, I was chasing Darnay Scott, the Cincinnati Bengals uh, wide receiver. Uh, I'm pretty sure I still have the world's uh, preeminent Darnay Scott collection. Got, I, I believe it's over 100 cards, which um, we also we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I've gotten some flack for this, but I loved Collector's Choice because I could sure. afford it. Um, you know, I, I don't think I bought a pack of 1989 Upper Deck until I was probably like 23 or 24 years old. Sure. Um, so so that was, you know, sort of a typical child uh, childhood collector. Um, but I did always like take better care of my cards. Um, you know, I always had the sleeves, uh, top loaders, all of that. And but around high school, you know, you start you get busy. You're actually playing sports. You you get a job and, uh, you know, you, you work at Burger King 12 hours a week and you've got school activities. So I just sort of fell out of collecting as many of us did. And, you know, mm -hmm. that lasted through college, uh, moved to Los Angeles after school um, to pursue a career in the entertainment industry. And I was making a little bit of money, you know, for a single guy. And so maybe two or three times a year, I'd swing by this card shop and buy a, you know, a box of flagship or um, a box of tops football. And they were, I would literally open them and then put them back in the packs because I had nowhere to store them. I was living, you know, a new apartment every year when they would raise the rent in LA. And so it wasn't until my um, future wife uh, moved out to Los Angeles and we found actually our second time finding an apartment. We got this really great lucky deal and um, uh, we moved in and I found there was this one cabinet or, or drawer, um, little closet space that we didn't have anything for. And I had these six or seven boxes of cards with the pack still in them. And I said, hey, I've got a place for cards now maybe I could start collecting again. So I started sorting them and here's the, here's the silly little kicker in this, in the story. I was sorting the football cards and I found that I had two Mark Sanchez's that were the same card number, but had different pictures on the front. And I was so confused. I went out and I was like, let me find a Beckett. And I went on Beckett online and paid a dollar 99 to get pricing for that one card. And I found out the SP photo variations. And I thought that Chase was so freaking cool that there was these cards that looked just exactly the same but were way rarer. Um, it was right after their second uh, um, championship game appearance. It was before the butt fumble and all that. So I actually listed it online and sold it for like 40 bucks, which, you know, now today that card's probably a $2 card. Sure. But uh, but that's what got me hooked back into it. So that was around 2011. Started picking up cards here and there. And then I discovered Twitter, which I think is one of the greatest sports card communities out there. The way that Twitter works just speaks to my brain more than the forums did. And yeah, so that, that was when I got really back into collecting. And then the Cubs drafted this guy, Chris Bryant. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect that guy. Got really into baseball. Um, and yeah, now here we are. And now I didn't hear basketball as a part of that. Did you collect basketball cards at all when you yeah, were younger? I, I did, but not not with the sort of zeal that I collected baseball at first and then football later. Um, 
always just a little more distant. I mean, I had a lot of 1990 hoops, you know, obviously loved that, but I really missed out on the, the big basketball boom in the mid nineties, totally missed out on that. And the other, the other really funny thing is, um, you know, my, a lot of people know me by the hashtag collect fail and we'll get to that in a minute. But, um, my very first collect fail, I would say was that when I was a kid, you know, it was still the late eighties, very early nineties when we would go to card shows all the time. And I would just ignore the vintage tables. I thought vintage was stupid because, mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't see those guys play. I want Jerome Walton. Right. And, uh, even then, even with the hobby starting to take off, vintage was still stupid, ridiculously low priced compared to what it's become. So yeah, the, it's always been a hobby for me. I realized very early on I was never going to make money opening packs. Even that Mark Sanchez is a great example. It's pretty cool to sell a card for 40 bucks, but then you remember you paid 70 for the box. Like it's fun. Sure. We're in it for fun. So. Well, what do you what do you collect now? What's what's the focus of your collection currently? Uh, Cubs. I absolutely love Cubs. You know, I pick up other stuff because of the economic side of it, because I do enjoy um, sort of seeing how markets work. But it's it's Cubs, and actually, um, I've got a few smaller PCs outside of that. Aaron Donald for the Los Angeles Rams. I love mm-hmm. him. Christian Pulisic. Uh, the uh, probably mispronouncing his name, which is embarrassing, but the U.S. soccer player overseas who um, hopefully will have a bright future. For years, I've wanted soccer to be better in the United States, and I feel like it finally actually is. Even though I never played, I wasn't a soccer nut or anything. I just think it's a beautiful game. So that's those are the other few things I collect. I do collect the L.A. Kings a bit, but I just don't have space for that many sports as much as i also think hockey is an incredible sport and absolutely love it and then diego rossi he's an lafc guy um who came here second year he was 19 i think when he came here to la so really love him cool what about you mike what do you collect i collect mainly cubs um also i've got i've got a binder of of some of my favorite cubs growing up in central illinois um, you know, that's it was either Cubs or Cardinals. And my grandma got me into the Cubs when I was about eight. And so I've been a Cubs fan my entire life. And so primarily Cubs, I like to put together at least one or two um, complete sets and go back and get some complete sets. I've been working on and when I say one or two, like I've been working on one or two vintage sets a year. And so kind of going back through the 70s and and building out vintage sets this year. I think it's probably just going to be one. I'm working on 1969 um, tops right now, baseball, and I'm down to about five cards. I think I need for that. And then, you know, I buy and sell a lot of collections. And so mm-hmm. as I'm sorting through these collections, I will pull out some of the, the superstars um, that I don't have yet. And so I've got kind of a binder where I kind of perpetually add the Mike Trouts of the world and, some of those other superstars I've got, you know, growing up in central Illinois, also bulls were, were huge, you know, when I was, they were in their championship run throughout my um, high school, junior high to high school years. And so I've got, you know, several hundred Michael Jordan, you know, individual Michael Jordan cards and some stuff like that too. So that's kind of the electric diamond 1994 star rookies is still a, a dream chase card for me. Yeah. 
yeah. I know it's a baseball card, not a yep. basketball card technically, but um, yeah, that that '91 Upper Deck where he was, you know, oh yeah, the SP, you know, White Sox card was uh, was the card to have when I was yeah. was growing up. Was it technically SP though? I th- I don't know if it was. Like, I mean, I think it was SP number the number SP one or something on the back, but. Um, I'm just curious if anybody's ever done the analysis on that and actually figured out if it is like, you know, there were three of them to every four of the others, even though there were 6 million of each card printed. So it's like, it's an SP. There's only 3 million in circulation. I have a feeling that's kind of what it was like. Yeah. If we ran the numbers. You you talked about also enjoying kind of analyzing the the buying and selling aspect, right? And mm-hmm. and you talked about that interest there, and a lot of the tweets that you make and some of the the commentary that you've got um, on Twitter is about some of that buying and selling of cards. I was just curious when your interest in that side of the hobby started. Well, so I think I I mentioned long ago I realized. Um, that I would never make money opening packs of cards. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at the catcher's mitt on Northwest radial highway when I was 10 or 11 years old, um, opening packs of probably collector's choice. And I would see, you know, the expensive cards at that time for us were $5 and it's like, well, I've opened six packs that were a dollar each and I haven't gotten one of those $5 cards yet. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of dawned on me. This needs to be an entertainment budget, not a money making budget. But at the same time, I go to Vegas, I play, I play roulette, I play craps. I look at that as entertainment budget too, but it's really fun when you hit big, right? So, so I try to take that approach in. Now, my day job is that I actually do personal finance, um, financial planning, investment management. And so there's a lot of principles in that field that are oftentimes ignored, um, you know, I, 90% of the industry still says I can pick better stocks than the other guy, even though all the data shows that nobody does that over a consistent period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? Well, Eugene Fama and uh, his partner French, they um, they won a Nobel Prize for efficient market hypothesis, which basically states that the amount of information with which you can make a decision about if you should or should not buy or sell something is known by everybody at all times. You know, this isn't 1955 when Warren Buffett pouring through the stock market was a ledger and a piece of tape, you know, that came out every 15 minutes with every single symbol on it. So you could spot inefficiencies then. Well, now my cell phone has all the power of you know, a, an office of 30 people constantly analyzing the market. So if my cell phone now has all that power and all that information, how can you actually find inefficiencies when a million other eyeballs and machines are looking for them also? Personally, I believe this also applies to cards, but keep in mind, and I've seen this, if you can find where the eyeballs are not, because there are still places where there are not eyeballs, you may be able to find some inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um, classic example of that would be the, like the first two weeks of Tops Now cards. Not as you know, people thought, well, this is new. I don't know if it's going to catch on, and so the print runs were much much lower. I should have found the card. I forget the card. It was the second card that came out, 
had like the lowest print run for a number of years. And so set collectors shot the price up through, you know, a hundred, two hundred dollars for a card that you could have gotten for four four dollars and eighty four cents shipped if you had bought twenty of them. Similarly, I've had some really good success with things like I mentioned soccer. Um, recently, Tops Now um, did a debut card of a guy whose father played Reina. Reina. Um, he's with Dortmund Borussia. I know I'm butchering soccer. Sorry, I could be butchering hockey. You pick. Um, but uh, 17-year-old phenom uh, with U.S. blood, and he had his debut. And they put out a Tops Now card. Well, there were only 469 printed. And once they stopped printing, now that card goes from being widely available to being only 469 printed. So I bought uh, the 20-pack to get the lowest price. And so it was like $89, I want to say. And I've already sold four of them for over $20. Mm-hmm. So now I'm sitting on 16 of them. You know, I've got one one that I submitted to Com C that's up there. It's the only one on Com C, you know, and it's like so I've got a lot of control and a lot of inventory now that is, you know, never at a loss to me. But yeah, so I look I look for things like that because I do think that there are inefficiencies to be spotted, but you have to think like that. You can't just you can gamble on players. You can do that all you want. But who knows when Chris Bryant's a great example of this. I've got a card sitting right here, the 2014 Bowman Chrome Prospect Autos, Chris Bryant, which at one time in a 9.5 was a four or $500 card. Now it's a two, maybe $300 card. Right. You know, and he's great. He's a, he's an all-star, you know, it's, it, um, we even saw it with Mookie Betts and Raphael Devers, Two years ago, Mookie Betts was soaring through the roof. And then last year, he has a really good season. Devers has a slightly better season. And because of the publicity of the Red Sox, Devers' prices shoot up and Mookie's prices go down, you know, whether they were overinflated before or I don't know. So it's just it's such a fickle gambling game with players that I would much rather analyze overall markets and try and see if there are inefficiencies to spot. I've had more of a challenge trying to focus in and and predict appreciation, you know, buying with the intent of a card appreciating at some point in the future for a lot of the reasons that you just outlined. My biggest success in creating a self-sustaining hobby is has been identifying arbitrage opportunities and finding those things that some people don't value at all, but I've been able to find a platform where other people do value them. And, and so, that's you know, buying cards for a penny or a half a penny a piece and knowing that there are platforms out there that I can sell them for 18 cents to a quarter a piece, put in a little bit of work to to sort and organize and list and then be able to to make that that margin from a penny to 18 cents or a quarter. And that's where I've had more of my success come when it when it pertains to you know making some money on cards well and that's what's intrigued me the last couple of years is that as much as i believe in efficient market theory where does that apply well that applies to ebay 
where you have people that have safe searches, you have people that are searching lowest price, lowest priced auctions, lowest price auctions ending soonest. You know, how many people in the world are searching that at any given time for the card you're trying to sell? Meanwhile, the dealer who sets up at a card show, you know, once a month and sees 12 people, maybe 20 people, most of whom are in a certain demographic, may not have a clue that mid to late 90s basketball cards have gone up where um, just being a Topps Chrome rookie means it's a $2 card. Mm -hmm. So it's still sitting there in their 30 cent box. And this is an example I specifically had at the National last year that just sold on ComC uh, this week. Got a Chauncey Billups in the 30 cent box, Topps Chrome rookie. I said, you know, it's a Topps Chrome basketball card. There's this weird intrinsic demand for those right now. It's worth 30 cents there. It's worth 30 cents to list on ComC. It took, uh, what is it, April? It took nine months, but I sold it for $3, which after fees and cash out equals like $2.10 in my pocket. But it's $2.10 that took less work than the story about it. Yep. You know, it took one move of pulling it out of a box, took a second move of putting it in my ComC submission, then took me pricing it once on ComC and then forgetting about it. So I do think that if you if you believe efficient market theory, you also have to believe that somebody whose market is narrowed, maybe by not being online or by not using some of these additional platforms that are out there, there are opportunities. You know, the dime boxes would be my best friend if I didn't have twin three-year-old boys and was able to go out to card shows every weekend. Yes, yes. You know, I think, you know, I, that's one of the things that I enjoy, you know, so much about the hobby is trying to, to solve for some of those puzzles and, and trying to identify some of those things, you know, based on a unique demographic or a, or a unique platform that hasn't necessarily translated across platforms. That's a lot of, that's, that's part of the fun to me. I want to take a second to tell you about a new trading card marketplace called Starstock. They're preparing to go live in April, so keep an eye out because the launch is just around the corner. Their goal is to be a faster and cheaper solution to sell cards, and they're looking for sellers who want to be some of the first to have their cards available for sale at launch. I'm going to be testing the platform with my own submission. They're offering a 5% sales commission with no submission or processing fees. You send your cards in and they do all the work. Your cards are insured and stored in a vault and you can have your cards shipped to you at any time. You can buy, store, or flip cards at the push of a button. If you're interested in learning more about getting involved as a seller and getting your cards onto the site for launch, contact Mike via email at mike at starstock.com. They're looking for sellers who have rookie and prospect cards of current players for the major sports. For more details, contact Mike at mike at starstock.com or go to www.starstock.com. You know, you also touched on a second ago, one of the other things that I've found fun is I've gotten back into the hobby over the last couple of years, and that's kind of getting plugged into social media and the, and the card community that exists on social media. Twitter specifically is another, you know, like you said, that's, that's probably my primary place to go to, to talk cards um, online. You're kind of known now as as one of the premier card show or card personalities. You know, with the the show that you do, Go GTS Live, you're up over eleven thousand Twitter followers now. 
you know, when did you decide that you wanted to become a card show personality? Or, or maybe it's fair <laughs> to say, did you decide that or did that just happen as you got engaged? I, I, I'm curious to know kind of the, the backstory of your social media presence as well. Well, this this is what was actually kind of surprising, Mike, um, and just a, a another one of many failures in my life that I have not been able to follow up well enough on that that you don't know this story. So so let me share with you. So I moved out to L.A. to do entertainment. My degree specifically was in acting. Um, I wanted to be an actor, performer. I was doing, you know, because web series just sort of started when I first moved out here. But then I had a day job in production, 12 hour days. It was crazy for about three years. After I left that, I was able to start doing content creation on my own. Um, so you can actually Google um, if you want to see some even more embarrassing stuff. Google hike time. It was a little web series I tried to do about uh, hiking the various canyons in L.A. with the that. idea that my hiker, my character was sort of a Steve Carell, I forget the character type now, but like, like confident, incompetent. Mm -hmm. So, and then you do these things and that, that market was so saturated at that time that it's like my mom would watch it. You know, the director of photography's mom would watch it and three of my actor friends would watch it. And it's like, man, how do you get views on these things? And then I was just getting back into the hobby. And at the time there were quite a few Twitter accounts that were simply like, win my cards, free cards every day. And they would just do like a card giveaway every day. And I was looking at those and I said, that's like, that's marketing. That's what I haven't had before. And I love the hobby. And I've also done so many dumb things in the hobby. So I, got together with some friends um, and said, hey, what do you think about this idea? And they all loved it. And it was, let's make a web series about my collect fails, my failures as a collector. So that's where the name Watch the Breaks comes from too, because I'm not actually a breaker. I don't actually do breaks, but the name of the series is The Breaks. You know, it's like how this guy can't catch a break doing these breaks. Ah. So I want to say that was like 2013, maybe 2013 through 2014. We did 10 episodes uh, and then, oh, and then every episode I would then open a box like after the episode and give away whatever the hit was. So, so the giveaways would help me get more views on the videos. So that's how I first sort of built up my following. But again, because I was actually engaged, like I really am a collector, you know, conversations just kept happening had a lot of fun with it. And then knowing that I was good with people, public speaking, um, interviewing others, terrible at getting interviews. Sorry, this whole thing's been all about me, Mike. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's the point. <laughs> I'm on the hot seat. But uh, so GTS, when they were looking to sort of fill a, a, a small void happened for a minute. It's hard to believe now with how much sports card content there is out there. Um, Back then, there was Cardboard Connection Radio, and that had actually stopped. And it was like there was barely anything else. Sports Card Radio is still out, but, you know, he'll he'll do three episodes one week, and then he won't do anything for three months. Right. Um, there really was nothing just providing information on the hobby, just basic updates, product information, that sort of thing. So GTS said, hey, we want to do that, and they talked to Rob Bertrand and me they wanted sort of a contrast of hosts and 
they reached out. And so that's how we started GoGTS Live, which is every Thursday on mm-hmm. YouTube, Periscope, Twitch, Twitter. And so we do that show every every week as sort of a service to both hobby shops and collectors. So I know that it's it's a very particular type of content, but it is meant to be mostly informational. But what's really cool about that, and also talking about where the eyeballs aren't, is the amount that I've learned about the hobby outside of Tops and Panini, who of course we feature them and talk to the, you know, literally talk to the heads of them sometimes, um, open their products, talk about their products. I've also gotten to learn about things like historic autographs, which is a company uh, run by Kevin Hefner, which puts out history-based content, including autographs of, you know, random great historical figures, um, you know, presidential products, things like that. I've gotten to learn about Onyx Authenticated, a company by Lance Fisher, who's a former scout who sort of took that approach of, you know, there aren't as many eyes at the a ball and double a ball level as we think and there's so much demand for those rookies those prospects autographs what if i could use my expertise to sort of create some some products to provide more product out there but also maybe introduce some names that you haven't seen in some other products so he has um a prospect product called uh, onyx uh, vintage and it looks like a, a heritage type card but it has all on-card autographs, and he gets a great mix of names like Wander Franco, huge names, um, but then also guys like Robert Pawson for the Oakland A's, who not a lot of eyeballs are on yet, but Lance swears by. And um, as an example, he had Matt Beatty before anybody else did. Nobody knew who Matt Beatty was. When he got called up, Onyx Authenticated was his only autograph. Um, Yankees pitcher Jonathan Loisiga. Lois he, he was in Lance's products when he got called up and the autographs went from being a dollar autograph to being a $150 autograph overnight because there were no Panini or no tops autographs of them. So these are all things that I've learned about from the show. And it's kind of cool because the show highlights those as well as the big name brands so that collectors can learn. Like there's a lot more out there. There's a lot that can bring you closer to the game. I think that's one of the cool things about, where we're at today in the sports card content arena is that there are shows like yours that do a great job in educating collectors on a variety of products. There's other shows that are talking about more of the financial side of things. There's shows that are talking just about the hobby side of things. There's, there's such a wide variety of, of focuses in the in the shows that are out there right now it's it's pretty interesting to me would you say that you've got any advice or you know maybe secrets to success in building a a social media following you know it it all depends on what you want um i am a very centrist person in general so you know i mentioned i built my following a lot through giveaways yeah and i constantly see people say no i only want true collectors or this or that and I don't see a problem with like, how do you get people to listen to you though? Even if you're good, even if you're really good, I back that up. I worked for a company in the interim between entertainment and finance, um, where they created a product that the number one company in their field said, wow, this is the first example of this done at a high end level. Like this is the first like top chef example of what we've been doing in this industry. 
And the owner of the company was like, okay, we're so good. I, I'm not going to send out samples. Shops need to call me for it. I'm not going to send them samples. They just need to buy it. Company went out of business in 12 months. So even as great as you may be at something, you still got to understand that people do need a little bit of something to bring them in. So I have no problem throwing out samples, so to speak, to get follows and then using those follows to build a community where we all talk to each other. And I, you know, without calling out any specific names of people because I respect their privacy, there's a lot of Twitter accounts out there with 30 or 40 followers, you know, that tweet once every two weeks that are on Twitter daily that are listening and engaging. And I say that because I've learned not to judge people based on what I see at first, even the quote unquote prize hounds. Um, I've tried to mix in a lot of charitable stuff. Um, I've tried to really support signatures for soldiers. I've done a couple fundraisers for people in need uh, in the past. And some of the biggest donations I've seen to those things have come from Twitter accounts in the hobby with 20 or 30 followers or mm -hmm. Twitter accounts that were just completely prize hounds. So, so I really try to reserve judgment. Obviously, if somebody is being cruel, bitter, mean, they don't really deserve a place in the community that I want. But I think that sometimes we can rush to judgment really fast. And if, if we do want to try to build a community, it's like, let's accept that not everybody collects exactly the way we do. Not everybody participates in community exactly the way we do. And they still might be really great humans behind some of those accounts. What would you say that you enjoy most about the state of the hobby right now? You know, right now or in 2015, it's all the same. It's always the people. You know, it's okay. like, Mike, I got happy. This is on audio, but I can actually see your face on the recording. Um, I got happy seeing you. I haven't seen you since, uh, you know, August of last year at the National. It's constantly the people for me. And I think that as the hobby ebbs and flows, you know, as it goes up, as it goes down, and I'm not saying it is going down right now. Actually, the the data has been really interesting to me and in how how the sales prices on most things have not matched the sales prices on other industries that are out there. But whether it goes up or goes down in the future, the people will still be the same. And, and I would actually, I would add, I don't know if I'm allowed to preach on the podcast, but to the purists out there, remember a lot of people start by seeing a dollar sign and seeing a gamble and seeing a prospect flip. And then it, they realize, wow, I actually do love this and I really love the people and wow, I've made true friends. So give people time as well. Um, you know, like let's let's not just hate hate one style of thing that we don't like or blame something, blame the hobby success for making it worse, if that makes sense. Um, there's so much room in it right now that even with so many things being inflated, there's still great stuff to collect. I can still go out and get, uh, I've got Gypsy Queen cards right here that came from a blaster delivered from Target. And I had a ton of fun opening them. So there is something for everybody. Don't, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if we're in a bubble or if we're, if we've leveled off, but I just love the hobby right now. I love the hobby for that component, the people. I think it's, I, I think that's, that's great. And I think you, you hit on something too there with, the the notion I, I bristle a little bit at the notion of there being 
purists or pure collectors or the view that there's no place in the hobby for attempting to make money or the business focus because if it wasn't for the business focus there wouldn't even be anything for us to collect to begin with because the manufacturers aren't, aren't in this for charity right the card mm -hmm. shops that exist aren't in this for charity you know they're looking to make money and if the people who are buying sealed product or buying collections and like some of it, if they weren't willing to sell or trade or move the product that they're not interested in, nobody else would be able to get the things that they're interested in either. And so it, it, it is a give years, and take, Mike, right? Like, you know, uh, the, I saw people complaining about the quantity of autographs Chris Bryant was signing and generally not the, not the big high end flippers complaining about it. Um, generally the, the general public. And I'm like, but wait, the more he signs, the more prices should actually come down to where now in 2020, I can probably go out and get a stadium club autograph of him at an affordable price. Whereas there's no way I could get his rookie stadium club autograph at an affordable price that year. So it's, it's just like, make sure that your arguments are consistent, <laughs> you know, like, if you're if you're worried that they're producing too many autos, but you also don't like the flipping aspect, then it's like, well, too many autos supports the idea that you collect to get closer to the game. So I just encourage everybody, you know, it's it's no different than when, when we were kids. Uh, I mentioned that I took better care of my cards than the neighbor kid. Well, the neighbor kid had all the nice cards, but he put them all in a shoebox. You know, and the other neighbor kid was the one that was going around cheating people out of 1986, you know, Jose Canseco's by giving them 100 cards for that one. You know, like yep. the flipping was always there that the taking advantage of, sadly, has always been there. So let's focus on what we can control and what aspects we can bring to the hobby and make our community within the hobby what we want it to be. One other thing that I was thinking about that I, I would be curious to get your thoughts on, you know, you and I are in similar situations, cards and, you know, whether it's content creation or the, the buying and selling of cards are not our primary, they're, they're not the way that we pay the bills, right? And mm -hmm. so, so we're balancing a day job, we're balancing our hobby and our interest in cards and we're balancing family. And I would I was curious if if you had any thoughts on or advice to to other people out there on balancing that day job, you know, their their primary paycheck as well as cards and family and and keeping those all in proper alignment. Um Really, you should ask my wife that question if I am keeping them all in proper alignment. In fact, I think it's kind of funny that you you um, that anybody sees me as a well, I guess personality is right. Influencer is definitely not right. But I I joke that the reason I do go GTS live is so that I have the excuse to stay in the hobby. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's like, well, hey, honey, I do have to do that web show. And, you know, I am, I'm part, 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 part time with GTS, but I do get, you know, um, 
a decent enough per hour, I guess I would say on that to make it justifiable. So for me, that's, it's actually another one of my excuses when it comes to, but wait, how could you buy that and flip that? You know, you bought those mega boxes and flip them and kids didn't get them. And it's like, look, I'm sorry, but flipping those 15 mega boxes allowed me to open the other five that I would have opened on my own. You know, it, it made it a wash financially to open the other five, which then allowed my wife and my family unit to be okay with the fact I was spending money there. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of internal systems um, for that, but also, you know, I would say it is important to be very open with your spouse about your spending in general. As a financial advisor, I have a specialty in working with people going through divorce, um, a CDFA, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. And between what I do for people and what the therapists do for people when we're able to get them to talk to one, it's almost like a lot of, a lot, not, not all, don't overblow this. You know, there's obviously physical safety issues at times and just emotional safety, but a lot of conflict in relationships starts from just not being transparent about money, not being on the same page about money. Usually if you're not on the same page about money, you're probably not on the same page about other things. So if you do have a family, if that is something that you're balancing in addition to the hobby, I would highly recommend that you find ways to at least inform or, you know, keep your spouse on the same page. They don't need to be in the room breaking with you. You know, they don't need to be like understand every single card, but give them some level of comfort about your level of being in it. So it's not just it's not just, oh, that thing that he does, he's he's in the room and I don't know what he's doing and can lead to a very healthy relationship. And then balancing it with your day job and with your work. That's that's a whole nother story. That's that's what your boss should be telling you. (laughs) Was that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's that's a lot for some folks to think about and and to take away. So appreciate that. And I will say too, my kids are young, so I'm pretty excited. Um, and I love hearing, you know, if you're on Twitter, shoot me a tweet. If you're listening to this at watch the breaks and tell me if your kids are a little older, if you've been able to bridge some of that by bringing them into your hobby as well, because mine are still too young to do that. And so I'm kind of nervous Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, if they're eight years old and they just say, no, I hate, I hate cards. Like, how do you deal with that? Um, So I'd be curious if people have sort of been able to find that balance by having their kids enjoy their hobby. I have two daughters, nine and 11, and my 11-year-old really could care less at all about cards. My nine-year-old, though, she's got a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak in her. And so Mm -hmm. she's had a lot of fun. Last year was the first time we tried flipping some stuff from garage sales. And had oh, some success cool. on buying some stuff at garage sales and flipping it. And she got, you know, a big chunk of that money. And so she, that, that little, little spark in her eye. And so I set up at a small, a smaller monthly show and she loves to come with me to the show because of that nice. buying and selling aspect and, and getting to see us, um, make a little money, you know, from the, the card show. And so she's not so much into the, the collecting the cards for the cards perspective, but Mm -hmm. she enjoys the process of taking these cards and then selling them. And then no one will go out to dinner or we'll go, you know, do use it for helping offset our family vacation or some of those types of things. So she enjoys that aspect too. That's, that's made her a little more interested in, in the cards. That's awesome. And, and, you know, 
a perfect example because at nine, maybe not the biggest fan of one sport or one team yet because still developing so much personality. Right. But maybe 10 years from now, the cards combined with now, oh, hey, I really love this team or I went to this college and this guy, this player went to this college. You know, you could see that transition happening too to the other type of collector. Like it's there now. The door is open. So I love that. That's really cool. Cool. Well, tell us if if people don't already follow you, tell people where they can follow you and pay attention to the content that you're producing. Uh, so I would I would recommend Twitter. If you're listening to this and you're not on Twitter, it's a great community for sports card collectors. Um, I'm on Instagram and uh, you know a few other platforms. If you search my name, you'll probably find me. Uh, happy to connect on LinkedIn as well. But uh, the best one is Twitter, twitter.com slash watch the breaks. And don't worry, I won't try to sell you breaks. There you go. Well, thanks again for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed having the chance to get to know a little bit more about uh, your background. Because like I said, by the time that I came on, you were already well established in the in the hobby. And I was was new uh, or a newly returning collector. So um, mm-hmm. this is the first chance I had to really kind of hear more about your background. So thanks again for coming on. Well, I'm honored to be on because uh, I think I've said this in tweets before, but just face to face, Mike, you, I really respect your podcast. I respect your approach. And uh, I also think that you have the best voice in the hobby for a radio show. Well, there you go. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again to Ivan. I just really appreciate him taking a few minutes to talk cards and to talk life. And I also really appreciate 241 Doc and G Davis RC who left a couple five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I, I love getting that feedback. I love hearing about what connects with you about the podcast. And so please let me know what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of. I'd really like the feedback. Also reach out to me at my email, waxpackhero at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at TheMikeSummer. And also check out The Hobby Hotline, our live call-in show that we do every Saturday morning with a bunch of other podcast hosts. You can follow that on Twitter at Hobby Hotline. That's all I have for you today, so I'll catch you next time.